The election on Tuesday wasn't all that interesting, except for one tiny element that we're going to talk about first on today's episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, and this is too good to wait for. Let's get to it. Could Armin Budish be elected dog catcher at this point? How upset are voters with the Cuyahoga County Council? We've been talking about these folks squandering millions and millions of dollars on unpopular products, and they seem not to care. Did voters on Tuesday serve them official notice that they are done? Layla. Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask, apparently. Uh, in the Democratic State Central Committee race on Tuesday, Budish came in third in his bid to represent District 21. He got 19 percent of the vote behind Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin, who came in second with 29 percent of the vote. Both of them lost to Kent Smith, who also won the Senate race for that same district. He he got 40 percent of the vote. So the main functions of the state central committee members are to represent the people of their precinct to the central committee, select party chairs and officers and to choose which candidates the state party will endorse. So it's not it's not a huge deal. But but what does it mean that our sitting county executive bombed out of this race. You know, not not only that, but two other county leaders also lost their bids for central committee. Well, hold, hold hold on on the others. Let's talk about Budish first, because th- this is I think this is hugely significant. The Senate districts are pretty big, um, th- and that's what these guys are elected from. And you know, people kept telling us we don't know the names of the candidates for the for the committees. This is a mess. Well. Everybody knows Armin Budish's name and they resoundingly rejected. Yeah. And and I I think it's telling because Armin Budish has insulated himself. He's got a bunch of people around him telling him he's great. When he was thinking about running, he was telling everybody, don't believe what you read on the plane dealer. They're out to get me. But here's evidence that the taxpayers are fed up with how he has managed the county. I mean, this is just a huge repudiation of him that that a lot of people are already talking about. If he doesn't read these tea leaves and stop things like 31 or more millions of dollars on the medical mart and slush funds and all the things we've talked about, he's making an even bigger mistake. We talked to a political expert about this. What did yeah, he say? Caitlin asked around for some perspective and she talked to Jerry Austin, who's a long time Democratic strategist and consultant. He was probably the most outspoken about the significance of Budish's defeat. He said this central committee race is often used as the testing ground of voter support for candidates who are trying to you know, seek office or, or to see if they're still relevant in politics. And if that's the case, he said that the results confirm what you're saying, that Budish is, is, is washed up. And I loved his quote so much, but it was kind of cringy because it's just like, oh, man, that's a blow. He said, you didn't come in first. You didn't come in second. You came in third. <laughs> so you're getting the message from people that they didn't want you to run for re-election for county executive. And now they don't, they don't even want to support you for state central committee. Armin Budish is a lame duck and he's not the future. We were like, oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, I know. But but maybe this will get through to him that that the course you've set in your final five, six months, change it, fix it. You know, do something to salvage your legacy. Don't lock in the next administration on a bad jail deal. Tee it up and and hand it over to them and let them decide because they'll have to marshal it. 
end this ridiculous medical mart squandering the money, putting us deep into debt for a building nobody wants. And really, they should stop spending their slush funds. So talking, speaking of slush funds, there were two county council members also running for these committee seats, and they both yeah, lost. Yeah, Marty Sweeney and Dale Miller, they both lost as well. And Austin was a little easier on them. He was like, well... You know, it, their their races were likely impacted by low voter turnout because those were newly drawn districts. And and actually, Dale Miller told Caitlin that he was pretty thrilled with how he performed in the election. <laughs> he is delusional. Loss. Can you can you believe it? Yeah, I'm pretty thrilled. I lost. I mean, it just makes no sense. Here here's the thing. Marty Sweeney is different than Dale Miller. Marty Sweeney was the Cleveland City Council president for a long, long time. People know who Marty Sweeney is. They rejected him. I mean, we, we wondered yesterday, Laura, you'll remember this, whether Bride Rose Sweeney won her race in part because of her dad. And I, my point was, I think she won in spite of her dad because people are sick of him. This is evidence that Marty Sweeney is not favorable to the voters. Dale Miller, a little less so. I don't know how many people know his name. He's been around forever and ever, but he's trying to say, well, the district I was running in really doesn't include where my voters are. So I think I did okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what he was saying. He was he was pretty happy with his uh, his showing. But, you know, it's interesting. Blaine Griffin uh, had a different take on the on the Buddhist uh, defeat. He was kind of like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. That's because Blaine Griffin. I know it's true. (laughs) (laughs) But he was like, you know, it makes sense that voters wouldn't choose an elected official who's on his way out of office. I mean, they both lost to a candidate who just won the Senate race for that. They just right. The same district, yeah. right? But I got to say, we were in the newsroom because we're in the newsroom once a week with Layla and Caitlin and uh, talking about this story. And it was really fun. Like, it felt like old times, <laughs> like just naming off political like, we um, gurus we could yeah. call or, you know, coming up with the past um politicians it was fun i hope every you know i hope everyone in the newsroom liked getting into the inside baseball of that yeah although i do think it's serious that these politicians should interpret this as voter displeasure they they don't hear it they they mm-hmm. they just they think we're doing great things i mean the fact that they're moving ahead with the medmart when everybody you talk to is like don't don't do it don't borrow money to do that this is this is the result is taxpayers are fed up. We hear from them all the time, but they surround themselves with a bunch of lackeys and yes people and they don't have anybody in their ear saying, hey, hey, don't do it. It was interesting, though, that two of the county council members voted against that deal, Layla, including one who's on the ballot in November for lieutenant yeah. governor. I wonder if it was connected. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the, she she does. Cheryl Stevens probably doesn't want to be tied to such a terrible deal. And so it's like, no, I can't vote for that. And the other was y- Yvonne Conwell, right? She doesn't normally side against everybody else. Yeah, I know. But I think that they're hearing that if I had to pick the two people that probably are in most touch with the taxpayers, it's probably those two. Mm. And they're hearing from taxpayers. What are you doing? Dale Miller, Marty Sweeney, Armin Budish clearly aren't hearing it, but they should interpret that ballot result as a possible sign. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of dopey spending by the county council, what happened when one of the members proposed spending part of their slush fund on a dog park in Newburgh Heights? 
Layla, your suit. This was one of my favorite stories so far this week. We Here we have these county council members who in recent weeks have been bringing forth millions and millions in proposals to spend their ARPA slush funds in their districts after, after claiming to have vetted these proposals pretty thoroughly against the needs of their constituents, right? Well, among County Council President Purnell Jones's pile of proposals this week is one to spend $219,000 on the Washington Dog Park in Newburgh Heights. That's a lot of money, right? There's a lot of bones, so to speak, but it's certainly not the <laughs> only dog park that's getting a ton of ARPA money. So Jones brings that before council this week. But then at Tuesday's council meeting during the public comment period, two Newburgh Heights Village Council members, William Dunman and Michelle Grayora, take to the mic to ask county council members to please not fund the dog park in their village. They say that they, there are far better projects to spend the money on. And in fact, only about a dozen dog owners actually use that park. And they said that their mayor, Gigi Traore, made a mistake when she picked the dog park over other projects. She was new to the office, having just taken over after former Mayor Trevor Elkins resigned in March and went to jail for misusing campaign funds. The village council members said their new mayor was under a time crunch and ended up overlooking these other important projects, like like a home maintenance grant program, which is slated to receive, I think, $40,000 in ARPA funds. And the council members are like, how about throw a few more dollars toward that project instead? It was just kind of amazing because here these county council members make it appear that they are really trying to hear the community and understand what their needs are before bringing these proposals forward. And yet here you have two council members from Newburgh Heights who are saying this is the worst possible use of this money for our community. This is this is just further evidence that this slush fund idea was poorly conceived and done so that these folks can try and curry local favor. We have the golf clubhouse. Now we got this. And which council member proposed this? Was this was Pernell Jones. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy that, that co-created this with Armin Budish. Remember, they did that all secretly mm-hmm. and not in the public eye. But but it's just wasteful. It's This is $66 million that if you had kept it and tried to transform lives, you could have. But they're coming up with projects that the local folks don't even want. Really good story by... Uh, Lucas. It was by Lucas, right? Lucas, right? Lucas Dupreline. So part of Stimulus Watch, which the readers love, and this is why this is waste. It's Today in Ohio. Meanwhile, Cleveland City Council continues to impress during the presidency of Blaine Griffin. What forward-thinking proposal is the council pursuing to keep police honest? And Lisa, I'm pretty sure this would never have come up under the council presidency of Kevin Kelly. The Cleveland City Council Safety Committee signed off on a law this week that would require the Cleveland Police Department to release body camera footage in cases of deadly force or in police shootings. And this would include, this is important, this would include uh, law enforcement officers from independent police departments within the Cleveland city limits, such as University Circle, RTA Police, the Cleveland Metro Housing Authority, and also police departments for colleges and hospitals. So this proposal uh, goes to full council, hopefully as soon as August 10th, next week. Um, This was something that was uh, Council Member Mike Polensik's 
baby. He's been trying to push this for over a year. He says, you know, we need transparency for the protection of both the public and law enforcement officers. He calls body cam footage an insurance policy. So yeah, this is this is interesting. A similar law was passed in Akron last year. And so this would require a video. So if there are like four officers on the scene, they must release the video from at least three of the body cams if applicable in applicable in that situation. And then any additional footage would be released within 30 days. Yeah, I, this is great. I mean, this is transparency. This is accountability. This is what I think the residents of Cleveland were saying they wanted when they created a citizen police commission. And Mike Polensic took over as public safety chair uh, in January. Layla, I don't think he was before January, was he? This was I new, think right? it was new, but and I don't want to misspeak. But yes, I think so. He, he had been it years ago, but I think he got back in and he's trying to do what the residents want. Very forward thinking. I mean, I, I was impressed that they're they're moving so quickly. Uh, Akron now. did. Yeah, they're, they're doing it now. But th- this was something that under the Frank Jackson, Kevin Kelly time, they didn't. I mean, Frank Jackson was the worst public official for public records we'd ever dealt with. I mean, it was it was a disaster all along every day. Um, and now they're trying to do things right. I'm, I'm impressed. I really, you know, Cleveland City Council had been kind of a joke for a long time. I mean, people were worried the county council would become Cleveland City Council. And it kind of is. Well, <laughs> Cleveland City Council is doing some smart things the way they've dealt with ARPA money. And this is a great a great effort. I, I So far, seven, what, six, seven months in, they've been impressed. Can I just highlight yeah, the they- part of the story that says that <laughs> Mike Polensic was complaining about how he had sent this over for, they council sent this over for administrative review a year ago. A year ago. And mm-hmm. that Frank Jackson's wow. administration had sat on it, but that, that it was sent over as a paper copy that seems to have gotten swept off someone's desk and thrown away. <laughs> because when he asked the, the bib folks about it they had no idea what they, what he was talking about they couldn't locate it so they had to kind of redraft it and start from scratch and go back to the you know and reintroduce well not reintroduce it but but bring it back up to revive it and i i think you know where are we on the on the uh you know city hall of tomorrow uh agenda i mean how are we still like usher it's like someone cleaned off their desk and away went important legislation that had been proposed and sent over for administrative review that's crazy that's amazing it just shouldn't happen those are the official records i mean that's a violation of the records law to be destroying public records but at least it appears they're trying to do things right. It takes a little while to get computers into the Fred Flintstone age of City Hall. So I, I'm not surprised that that's not done yet. But the fact that this is moving as quickly as it is, is a good sign for this leadership. It's today in Ohio. So it turns out algae, which has caused all sorts of problems in the western basin of Lake Erie near, near Toledo, has caused some serious issues with contamination in Cleveland spigots as well. Laura, what's the problem and what is the costly solution? The problem is manganese. That turns water yellow or brown. It's not actually harmful to drink, but it's really gross looking. I mean, I don't think you want to drink manganese water. And this is a problem because of the decomposing algae at the bottom of Lake Erie. And it's related to the dead zone that happens every year because the algae 
moves and spreads, decomposes on the lake bottom north of Cleveland and consumes all the oxygen available, that results in hypoxic water. That means low oxygen, and that's the dead zone because fish can't live there. And the water's pH drops, that allows it to absorb metals from the bottom of the lake, including iron and manganese. So what the water department wants to do is spend $2 million to upgrade the intake crib that feeds water into the Nottingham water plant. That supplies water to the east side and several eastern suburbs. That's where this has been the problem the most. And they want to raise the crib off the floor so it doesn't get that contamination. The, 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 is there a taste issue with it or is it just it's gross looking? I think there could be a metallic taste to it. It's not going, it's not like toxic that uh, the folks in Toledo had to deal with that one time. You're not going to get sick because of drinking it, but I don't think anybody wants to drink yellow water. Like I would have a hard time swallowing that. This is, I guess, more of a West side of the city problem. The East side is largely served by the Baldwin water plant. And this is over where Nottingham is. Has anybody, have you or Layla, have you seen yellow water coming out of your taps? No, isn't... Well, I guess if you did, you would chalk it up to the renovation that's going on <laughs> in houses. They, they had a problem last year, and Courtney mentioned it in her story, which I remember the story from last year, and the water department was saying, hey, it's okay, you're not going to get sick, but hey, don't wash your clothes in this, because they could stain it because of it. But it did uh, affect... It's actually the east side and in some of the east side suburbs is yeah, what I think. I, oh, I think good. Nottingham okay. is east. Hunting right? Valley, actually. Euclid to Hunting Valley. That's the far east side then. Okay. Well yeah. yeah, that that's a distressing and it's algae. I mean it's we have too much algae because we have too much Right. And so we generally think, well, at least we don't have the algae problem that the Western Basin has, right? We don't see the green scum on the surface and our beaches aren't affected. But it's a reminder that it's all connected. But I do want to point out, though, that manganese is a a supplement that people take. So it's not bad for you. It's actually beneficial in some ways. Just just throwing that in there. That that's a supp- I know magnesium is a supplement. Manganese is also a supplement. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lisa's going to go okay. chug her glass of brown water. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a, I've been a, I drank tap water in Houston. That was dangerous, but yeah, I'm a tap water drinker. <laughs> well, generally, I got to say Cleveland water. I'm a big fan of the taste yes. and I, I drink it right from the tap all the time. No problems yeah. Cle- at all. Cleveland has some of the best water in the country. We know that. It's today in Ohio. What does a recent study tell us about how people can experience pain differently, some people suffering much greater distress from it, and how can a new set of questions for patients help doctors avoid getting those patients addicted to opioids? Lisa, this is a little a little noticed study from a few weeks back, but it has huge ramifications in a region that has been beset by the opioid epidemic. It really does. And hopefully it will help people who have chronic pain get the chemical support that they need without any stigma. Um, this study was in published in Pain Reports Journal. It was co-authored by Trent Hall from Ohio State University and Daniel Claw from the University of Michigan. They found that um, this indicates that people with chronic pain disorders like fibromyalgia and those who are addicted to opioids have the same overreaction to pain. It's called sensitivity sensitization. So your brain and spinal cord, uh, you know, you know, process these pain 
feelings at a very high level. It makes the nerves more sensitive to pain. And they found that this might explain why some medications don't work on chronic pain and why it's difficult to break the opioid abuse cycle. Uh, Dr. Christopher Sletton was quoted in our quoted in our story. He's a pain rehabilitation specialist at Mayo Clinic. He's been treating central sensitization patients for 20 years. He says treatment of the underlying pain can help patients wean off opioid drugs and break the cycle of relapse and addiction. He says treating pain must be part of opioid addiction treatment. Addicts are more likely to relapse if their pain is not addressed. And he says currently in the uh, addiction treatment standards, pain is not even considered. So this brings a whole new thing to the equation. But this, uh, you know, treatment is pricey for central sensitization. It's $30,000 at Mayo Clinic, not always covered by insurance, certainly not covered by Medicaid. But yeah, this is, in my mind, this is a groundbreaking study. Yeah, that, that's what I thought when I first saw it. I mean, th- think about it. You know, you and I could both break our arms, but if you have the, the sensitivity, it it's a 10 on the pain scale where it might be a four for me. Mm-hmm. And doctors who deal with the population at large probably hear from people that are at the 10 level and think, ah, you're just making it up, so I'll give you more pain meds, when they're actually feeling it much more intensely. And to figure that out and properly diagnose people could make an enormous difference in the quality of life and avoid addiction. Right, right. Because there is there is a use for opioids. I mean, it's gotten a bad rap that there are some people who whose lives are made normal only because of opioid you know, uh, treatments. So this would be a way to kind of tailor the treatment to the patient. Well, and I think it probably gives some relief to people who feel the agonizing levels of pain and can't get help for it. So good story, good study. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. How is Cedar Point doing this year with a lot of people returning to normal despite that COVID is raging again? Laura, Cedar Point, one of our favorite things, and you get it today instead of the Layla Tassi family trip to, to Cedar yeah, Point. Yeah, I was surprised. I was like, all right, well, Layla can chime in whenever she wants in this answer. <laughs> but uh, Cedar Point is raking in record profits, even though attendance is down a little bit. Net revenue increased to $509 million for the second quarter. That's up 17% over three years ago. So the company is paying down debt, and they reinstated a quarterly dividend to co- to uh, unit holders for the first time in more than two years. This was a call that Susan Glaser listened into from the Cedar Fair CEO. He says he has more confidence in the business than he's ever had before. Uh, Attendance was 7.8 million across the Cedar Fair parks across the country. Uh, in the second quarter, that's down 8% from 2019. And Zimmerman, the CEO said, one reason is that there's a slow to recover group travel, which makes sense. Like it's one thing to take your family to amusement park. I don't know if like people are signing up for tours or they're having family reunions yet, but uh, the company sold a record 3.2 million season passes for 2022 and bookings at overnight resorts are strong. Plus they're selling a lot of stuff both inside and outside the park. Layla, you were over there recently when you were off for a week, right? Did you see huge crowds? Uh, We went uh, in the middle of the week, and it was a comfortable uh, crowd. I I didn't think that it was too crowded at all, but others have said when you go on the weekends, it's it's crazy. Uh, It's mine. But really, 
it doesn't surprise me that they're that they have record sales despite lagging attendance because their markup on food and everything is so high. <laughs> no, yeah, like, like, I wanted to get. I really a, feel like if a, they could let people in for free and still have a record year. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to buy a funnel cake last time I was there. I was like, I cannot stomach twelve fifty for a funnel cake. Wow, like, I just wow. can't do it. It's crazy. It's wow, nuts. for a pile of dough with my hot oil, and you're paying twelve fifty. Yes. That is why my kids did not and me did not get a funnel cake that day. Right. Okay. Well, good news for Cedar Fair. It's today in Ohio. What is a visual bucket list and how did one couple's idea for it involving their child become a movement to help lots of children? Layla. Well, Caitlin Durbin gave us two lovely pieces this week about the Visual Bucket List Foundation. It's a Mansfield-based nonprofit that helps kids with degenerative conditions likely to one day claim their eyesight, have meaningful experiences that they will remember for the rest of their lives. And Caitlin met the Myers family, who are at the heart of this foundation, and their young daughter, Lizzie, in 2015, when Lizzie was only five years old. Lizzie has a rare genetic disorder called Usher syndrome type 2A that not only caused bilateral hearing loss, but was likely to rob her of her eyesight by the time she becomes a teenager. So her parents had just learned of this diagnosis in 2015, and they decided that they wanted to fill her life with these amazing visual experiences before it's too late. And high on that list was the moon and the stars because night vision would likely be the first thing that she would lose. So Caitlin writes in her column that that she was near the end of her shift at the Mansfield News Journal when she got this call about this little girl going to the local observatory that evening for a private viewing of the night sky. And she was a crime reporter at the time, and at first felt like this wasn't quite in her wheelhouse, so she tried to pawn off the story to someone else. But then she realized if she didn't write it, no one would, so she went. And that meeting with with Lizzie and her family was life-altering for all of them, because the Myers were, you know, at first hesitant to tell their story, but they ultimately decided that they would set aside their discomfort with the, the limelight in favor of increasing the awareness for their daughter's condition and, and also to help deliver the message for parents that they should be living in the moment with their kids. But the story that Caitlin wrote ended up going viral. Lizzie was inundated with offers from around the world from people hoping to help contribute to her experiences for her visual bucket list. They offered the family trips. They they went uh, to uh, places like Italy, where the locals gave her pizza-making classes and the exclusive tour of the Colosseum. And she even got to go to the Vatican, where Pope Francis blessed her eyes. I mean, just amazing. So that's when the Myers decided they wanted to pay this all forward. They created the Visual Bucket List Foundation and have granted 12 wishes so far. And they recently asked Caitlin to join them at the San Diego Zoo, where they brought a nine-year-old girl on this dream safari getaway. And you can read Caitlin's story about that trip and also her column about how she became close with this foundation. Um, It's all on Cleveland.com. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. It's also, I think, a, a story about the the importance of the media, the the fact that she did the story, that the Mansfield Journal jumped on it, and it becomes this international phenomenon helping children. doesn't happen if the media is not here. Local media matter in a huge right. way. So if you're not subscribing to any of our platforms, you probably should. It's Today in Ohio. We've seen a variation of this at the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, but now Circle K is using it. What is this mind-bending technology that can figure out what you are buying without using barcodes? 
Lisa. It's called Smart Checkouts, and it's being installed in a Northeast Ohio Circle K stores. They began testing this technology back in December of 2020 in Cleveland and Akron. It's now in 30 stores, but they're so happy with it, they're going to push it to all their 7,000 stores within the next few years. The California maker is called MashGin. Basically, it's an overhead camera at the checkout. It scans items placed on a platform. They described it as looking kind of like the overhead projector you used to see in your classrooms. And so you put your items on this platform, the technology without barcodes or scanning, it IDs and tallies your order in seven to 11 seconds. That's 400 percent faster than just a regular self-checkout. It still has trouble with large items, though. Like if you have a big case of bottled water or something, it it doesn't like that. But you can still, there are still barcode scanners at these checkouts for items that can't be done with uh, smart checkouts. But yeah, it's interesting. And they're also going to be adding cash payments to this system and the ability to pay for gasoline as well. So uh, someone with Cleveland.com tested this. uh, There's a Cuyahoga Falls Circle K off of Route 8, and they bought a slushy, which is similar to a Polar Pop, you know, in appearance, but it immediately correctly identified it as a slushy. So yeah, this is interesting stuff. I don't know. Is little, this, go ahead. Is this an effort to get around the, the shortage of workers that you can have fewer people working there if, if the customer's doing all the work? I, I would guess, but a Circle K is, is not a big store. I mean, so it's interesting. You'd think you would see this more in a grocery store than a small convenience store, but yeah. But, you know, you're, I'm a self-checkout person. I've been a self-checkouter for years, so, you know, I'm kind of biased in that direction. But yeah, it probably has to do something with short staffing. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Here's a short one. This shouldn't surprise anybody. What was the verdict in the murder of off-duty Cleveland police officer Shane Bartek? And how long did it take jurors to come back with their decision? Laura. Tamara McLeod, uh, she confessed on three separate occasions to killing Shane Bartek. She maintained she didn't mean to do it, but obviously she was convicted. Uh, She now faces life in prison without a chance at parole. Uh, but jurors did quit. I think it took four, yeah, deliberated for four hours before returning this verdict. They found her guilty of killing him. But um, they acquitted her of the charge of aggravated murder that accused her with prior calculation and design. So it was a second count of aggravated mur- murder for purposely causing the death and commission of an aggravated robbery. So that was the the circumstance there. So she will be sentenced on September 27th. Yeah, I just, I still don't understand why this went to trial. Once you have three confessions and all the evidence, this was an automatic conviction. Uh, It just, it. it, And the family uh, didn't want the death penalty. So that was not up for a decision, correct? Yeah. So I guess she just decided, well, if I, there's no deal to make, I may as well go to court and go before a judge. But uh, it did seem like a waste of everybody's time when she had already confessed to doing it three times. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week.